being compassionate and being empathic do not come without a cost, but I think that those things are necessary to be able to do your job well. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Jacob Miranda. And I'm Cassie Witt. Now, Cassie and I are doctoral students here at the University of Alabama, specifically in the Experimental Psychology program, where we're concentrating in social psychology. Together, we are the hosts of Corrupting the Youth, a podcast about the teaching of psychology. If you love psychology, education, or both, this is the podcast for you. Hello, 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 beautiful people. Welcome back. It's episode five. Cassie, this is the first time you and I recording after our first like four episode binge. Holy shit. We did four episodes and now we're actually continuing it up. Yeah, I feel like we have, um, we're actually in this now. You know, it's not, we joked about doing this for a long time. We actually recorded a few episodes and I feel like now we're actually really doing it. Listen, I don't want to be the numbers guy. But I'm definitely looking at the numbers. Just for four episodes, we already hit over a thousand downloads. I know. It's like WT. Like, listen, I was expecting like five to ten people per episode, and it's just like, oh no, everyone across the world from Americans of India, quite literally, because they'll show you like location pings, and I'm like, who are these people? And how do I don't think our marketing is that great? I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Wow, is that some subtle shade at my social media management? I'm just saying one of us works social media, sweetie, and it's not me. But it's like, definitely not you. <laughs> it's never me. But to be fair, though, our marketing, although fantastic by our manager, uh, you know, maybe it's just better than I expected. The effectiveness of like our 20 followers on social media are just really spreading the word about us. I don't know. Yeah, I think this week we hit 30 Instagram followers and I was super stoked about it, but our download numbers are way higher than that. And like you, I was expecting like, oh, maybe our advisor's going to listen, my mom, my girlfriend, you know, there's like three downloads right there. And now we're at over 1100 actually. The secret I wanted to tell you is it's just been me. I've been on the replay <laughs> hitting that download button. You know, I bought a VPN just for this specific purpose to get different location things. <laughs> yeah. so it seems new and novel that we actually have yeah you just like listen to uh, yourself talking on loop for hours and hours listen am i not a narcissist do i not want <laughs> to hear the sound of my voice all the time do you think that you have to be slightly narcissistic to start a podcast that's a good question i would say that's why i asked it <laughs> Wow, you're just taking all my little witty comments and you're just appropriating them for yourself. I don't want people to think you're the only sassy one. Sassy Cassie's plagiarizing Jakey right now with all her wit. I would say, I think it might be my initial instinct to be like, yeah, you have to be a little bit narcissistic to start a podcast. Um, because you're basically saying like, my voice is worth listening to and I believe other people should listen to what I have to say to a certain extent. Yeah. But I don't think that's where we came from, right? Like, I don't think you and I had this whole notion of, like, we're going to be the next Joe Rogan. Um, I hope our not. voices, we have such a unique voice that we have, to, we have to, you know, throw our hat in the ring. It was just more of, like, from what you and I could tell, this just seemed to be, like, a missing hole and something that we're passionate about, teaching in psychology. And I kind of looked around. I think you kind of looked around and there really wasn't anything dedicated to that. And so we're probably not even the best people to speak on this topic. 
But you know what? If we're the only ones that by default, I think it didn't come from a place of narcissism, but just like, oh, we really care about this and we're sure we're sure other people care about this too. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. It also for me, I think is kind of a creative pursuit. And I don't very often get an opportunity to edit things or think about like social media posts or like how to engage with people in a really creative way. And this kind of like satisfies that. How do you feel like the downloads have impacted your thought of like, I guess, from this episode in the future, right? So like, to be perfectly frank, from the four episodes we did, right? I think like episode one, like first time teachers or whatnot was like, all right, got 25 to 30 downloads. Um, The next one of like ungrading, 25 to 30 downloads, which don't get me wrong. That's like still better than I initially thought. Again, I was thinking like five Mm -hmm. maybe. And those five would be like friends and family episode four the lgbt one i think is also currently around like that 30 download mark but dang there is a single episode episode three the incentives system and teaching i don't know what went on but that in and of itself has alone has over a thousand downloads just in of itself and i'm like people i don't know how why that one popped off specifically but now i'm kind of being like a trend chaser i'm like oh is, is this where we get the views is this- i mean i guess it kind of is like a spicy topic though the incentive structures people care about those things and there's already a lot of discussion generally in academia surrounding incentive structures and the way our publishing works so i think looking at incentive structures and talking about that in regards to teaching in academia people probably care about that a lot as well maybe it's just my pessimism but like because i talk about it so frequently and that's just kind of like our labs component all the time and even maybe before the lab i would just been like this seems like at face value a boring topic like who wants to talk about systems or systemic barriers it just seems like very much a abstract thought that's not concrete and i tend to like concrete stuff but my intuition was completely wrong um so I'm not sure if it was the topic itself that drew it. Maybe we were just extra passionate and spicy that video. Maybe I did a little too many cussing and people are like, we like this. I, <laughs> I roasted you quite a bit. So maybe you did. That was, uh, so. Maybe that was it. Yeah, they like our they like our banter. Yeah, that's the secret sauce. People who know us, though, I think they understand, like, we very much have, like, an older sister, a little brother kind of dynamic. So it's uh-huh. like, I'm, I think it's very much like you trying to annoy the shit out of me constantly and me being like, Jacob, leave me alone. <laughs> but that's the best part. I don't even have to try. It's just so natural. I know. <laughs> I mean, we've been we've been friends for a long time now as well. So it's like... I think we know how to push each other's buttons and you have like no qualms about pushing mine. You were like, I'm going to annoy Cassie so hard in this episode. I just wake up on days and be like, I'm choosing violence. That's the best (laughs) thing I can do. You really do though. One thing before diving into the meat of today's topic, I wanted to like mention is maybe do like a peaches and pits or like roses and thorns of like, what are like some recent achievements you and I focused on? Because it's been a month since we've last recorded. A lot's gone on. The don't say gay bill that we talked about in episode four now passed or looks like it's about to pass. Um, I think it was signed, actually. I don't know. But like that's think, coming up a lot I more frequently. I think it was. Yeah, I'm seeing that in the news a lot more frequently. And something else distressing is just all of like the anti-trans legislation that's happening in a lot of states so there's stuff happening in in Alabama where we are both currently living there's stuff happening in Florida Tennessee Kentucky 
Um, Ukraine, Russia. Yeah, true. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of negative things are are going on. But yeah, what are some uh, recent achievements then? Let's like kind of start with a positive note before we start talking about the. Okay. Yeah. Burnout. I guess I. Yeah, I have a a terrible habit of like sometimes ruminating on the negative mm -hmm. before I focus on the positive. Trying to change that about myself. One big thing that happened for me recently was I won a teaching award. Here at Alabama, we have teaching awards at the departmental level, the college level, and the university level. I won the outstanding teaching award in our department and then I went on to win it for the College of Arts and Sciences and then just a few weeks ago I found out that I won it at the university level as well so I get to go to a nice ceremony in early April and get a plaque. <laughs> I'm very excited about it. I obviously care so much about teaching and have invested like so much of my graduate career into trying to become a good teacher. So it's very nice to like see that work be rewarded in this way and get an opportunity to be recognized. I like it, especially at the University of Alabama, where I think it's the campus what at least has 50 grand, 50,000 undergraduate students. Like it tends to be a bigger campus mm -hmm. with a lot of teachers. Mm -hmm. And that the fact that it wasn't just at the psych department or like the humanities college, but literally campus wide, I think to say that you beat out every other nominated teacher yeah that's impressive thanks <laughs> too bad you're already off the job market <laughs> i know already off the job like i got a job without that award <laughs> which makes me feel pretty good but an award that i've recently or like what i would say is an achievement is i tend to be and maybe our lab just like slower to like publish articles so i do a lot of like group work or large collab ones where i'm like a list of like 100 authors but most recently i got my first rr where i'm first author mm -hmm. It was about like open science and psychologist attitudes about the open science movement. I'm glad that my first publication or official publication is something that I'm definitely proud of. And it's not just something where like, I know some people start off in undergrad or maybe even a master's, they try to get some papers done there. But then when I talk to them, they're like, eh, yeah, not the best paper, but like it was a pub. I'm not sure if my way is the right way. Maybe it's definitely the wrong way with the current incentive system, but like, hey, better late than never. Happy for a big paper to get out and um, Hopefully that makes me a little bit more attractive on the job market to actually know. I actually have a publication that's my has my first name on it or lists me as the first author. Yeah, I'm so proud of you for this. I'm on this paper with you and I know how hard you have worked on it. And so being at the point where you get a revise and resubmit, I think you should be ecstatic. And I do think that is a paper you should be very, very proud of. The real question though, Cassie, has COVID ruined our work-life balance? Yes. <laughs> episode over. <laughs> it's just a COVID episode. It's messed with a lot of things. And I think it has made becoming burned out a whole lot easier than it was in the past. I, I mean, I, I don't know exactly like what your experience has been, Jacob, but I know for me, I am very prone, especially in the spring semester, to just get really, really tired and like really exhausted and really ready for a break. And I think that adding COVID on top of like an already kind of stressful experience of graduate school has just been so exhausting. I'd like to share a story with you, Cassie. Way back when I was a wee lad of an undergraduate working in the residence life department, and it was my first year of training, I believe. 
and it was before the semester actually started we had to like live in the residence halls decorate the halls all that stuff um but it was a week long like eight hours a day of formal training and then also working um, after that and so there were certain trainings that one was, i believe was hosted by like the dean of dei um she was a new hire i believe her name actually i won't say her name um because i she may be gone from university of california riverside so she might be gone from ucr but i'll never forget her advice that rubbed me the wrong way um my sophomore year which is one of my first year of training because she was also talking about like work-life balance and that's just a very popular topic in io psychology but i just think in like linkedin or any of like the managerial spaces how do we improve it and her thoughts were this when you're talking with a resident or a customer, right? Whatever you're experiencing right now, it's almost like a retail perspective. Whatever experience right, you're dealing with right now, if you're dealing with a death in the family, if you had a bad day, if you recently failed an exam, she wanted and what she requested is for us to imagine a box and to open up that box. And I'm like, okay. And then she said, I want you to think of all the feelings that you have. And I want you to condense them and squeeze them down so they fit in this, I remember it was tiny box was her analogy. And I want you to close that box, lock it and put it deep, deep down inside your heart because your emotions and your feelings, they're not appropriate for the workspace in these settings of when you're like interacting with residents. But like that was your philosophy. And I feel like that's a lot of a philosophy of maybe a lot of like older generations of just mm-hmm. like, listen, your emotions, you really don't care about them in the workplace. Work is work. You got to get your work done. So this makes me think of there's a lot of literature out there looking at people who are in medical professions because these are like if you're a nurse or a doctor or a physician's assistant or or something like that like you work in the medical field these individuals are so prone to becoming burned out and really rather quickly and a lot of it is because their job involves interacting with other people and caring about other people i think there are a lot of parallels in in academia as well especially if you have students where you have a job to do teach but your job also i think inherently involves caring about your students, or in my opinion, it should involve caring about your students. But in jobs like that, where you have to be caring about the people that you like work with or work to help so often, it causes you to get burned out, right? Like being compassionate and being empathic do not come without a cost. But I think that those things are necessary to be able to do your job well. And you're absolutely correct. I know from the literature, like nursing burnout is a very specific type of phenomenon because it is more prevalent. I think if I recall correctly, physicians face a different type of burnout because there tends to be more call of like, you need to build better rapport for your patients. And a lot of doctors just kind of suck at that. Maybe that's not the point of a podcast, but like as an aside, like it just seems like a lot of doctors really don't know how to care about their patients or treat them like human beings but rather something to get through a task. But that's neither here nor there. I think your point is well taken that you can draw parallels between the idea or the action of caring, like with nurses to teachers. I think one issue that arises, and maybe this is a throwback to our most popular episode, is that there's certain incentive systems. Definitely feels like the academia culture as a whole definitely isn't conducive to work-life balance, or at least historically it hasn't been. There seems to be more recent shifts, and this could go to the publication or parish nature, but like, unless you're a publication monster and machine, which there are still definitely advisors who feel that way about their students, some students who've internalized, like my only job here is to publish. 
I feel like that quickly leads to burnout, not including any type of sloppy science, but just on a personal level of burnout. I think you're right. I think that our incentive structure is just not set up really for compassion towards yourself, especially like above all all things. Like it seems the pressure to be super productive is often at odds with your ability to properly take care of yourself. And for me, it's really sad because I think a lot of people get into academia or they go on to pursue a PhD in something, right? Like I went on to pursue a PhD in psychology because I just enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed learning about it and thinking about it and asking questions and talking about it. But then the environment, if you aren't careful, can just exhaust you so that you no longer find enjoyment or fulfillment in the thing that was once so central to like your happiness. So would you say like the motivations change then? because of the current system where it used to be more about, or you can imagine that many people start off with this epistemic motivation to get at truth, but that turns into like an external motivation to change public. Like, do you think that matters if your motivation or your orientation impacts you as a researcher? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I love that. I, I do think that there has to be for many people a shift that happens. I think you're often really idealistic when you first start graduate school, like I'm gonna change the world with my research, well, that's really a non-epistemic value. Or, you know, you're just really interested in like asking questions and trying to figure out the answers to those questions. But then at some point it suddenly becomes, oh, I can't just do this. Basically it's capitalism's fault. So it's like, you, you're like, I just can't do these things. I actually have to make this a job so that I can get money. And so I'm going to have to like meet certain expectations or like thresholds for performance so that I can get paid and have a salary. So, you know, I can like feed myself and my family. I don't know. I think that's one part of it. So like the job suddenly becomes a job. It's no longer just like this cool thing that you're pursuing because you were interested in it. So I think that has a lot to do with it. Like just the pressure there and the way like our larger society is structured. But I do think like the culture of academia too is just like, you better publish, better not care about yourself. You better be working these long hours. And I think a lot of the discourse surrounding these issues as well, right? It's people putting out unrealistic expectations. And I remember when I first started grad school, having a conversation with Alexa, our advisor, where she was like, you know, people are going to tell you I work like 80 hours a week, you know, just like really crazy numbers. And she's like, realistically though, like, are they working 80 hours a week? So just be really careful with the, like the social comparison that you do. If you're trying to like match these unrealistic standards that actually nobody is, is doing, just be really mindful of those things. And it's something that, that always kind of stuck with me. You mentioned how it's almost unreasonable, the certain expectation that have on us um, and how we need to appropriately calibrate those expectations like the 80 hours a week. A bastardization I've seen of that or like a work-life balance is I recently got a newsletter uh, and the whole point of it, like the piece that was written was that so many professors are focusing too much time on teaching. And so the fact is they don't need to work more, but they need to start giving away on their teaching responsibilities, right? They didn't say it quite this frankly, but close to it of saying, listen, you're focusing too much on getting good material to your students. You don't need to be doing that. You need to focus on your research. So they would say, don't work more hours. They would probably say work smarter, but working smarter means just working more on your research. And that's what an early uh, career researcher grad student needs to do. Um, 
so is that a form of work-life balance or just like i obviously i'm asking a biased question to you and the crowd of is that worthwhile endeavor because i feel like that's the wrong advice right like of course you don't have to work so much but give up the teaching it's like i mean i think it depends on your priorities and it depends on the parameters of your job so i think for example, if you are at a teaching-focused institution, you probably shouldn't be focusing less on your teaching. And I think that, that if that is something that you have made a priority, then it doesn't make sense to like shift your work hours around to devote less time than that. I don't know. I don't think that's good advice necessarily to like take away from the time that you spend teaching. But I don't think that it's wrong for someone to want to prioritize research over teaching if that's like where their passion lies. I don't know. This is a very like middle of the road take. I would say then the issue just goes into the fact of that we're putting people in positions that aren't solely fitted to their interests, right? So I feel like there are some researchers who definitely do care more about teaching, but then they're told that they need to publish. And there's definitely people who care about publishing, but then they're being forced to teach. That fit sometimes is a bit of a mismatch. And instead you get kind of like people burning out from research because that wasn't their primary interest, but you also get people getting burnt out from teaching or feeling like it's an extra burden when they would rather focus on their own, like building their own body of work. Yeah, like I'm going into a job where I'm going to have a 4-4 teaching load. And I love teaching. I'm super passionate about it. Love spending lots of time on it. So that's going to be perfectly fine for me. But like, do I know people who are in a 4-4 teaching load and they want to be focused on more research stuff than their teaching? Definitely know that that's the case as well. No, but honestly, it's... It's just if you look at the jobs out there and you narrow it down, you know, like based on like where you're willing to live or where you're willing to move or, you know, what your qualifications are, you don't really have a lot of room, I think, if you want an academic job to be super picky, you know? So it's like if you filter out all of the schools that have a 4-4 teaching load because you want to focus on research instead, like what does that leave you with? I want to track back to something earlier you said about being compassionate because on one end, the students are going through their own version of burnout as well. We as teachers are going through our version of burnout. I would agree that we need to be more compassionate, but do you think that in itself can be tiring, especially when we're going through our own burnout? Um, and I can imagine like a student's coming. I'm thinking of like one student in particular that I think you and I recently talked to who is just like, I wasn't going through anything at the time. I was like, you were going through anything at the time, but um, this person was like in the hospital. This person got C diff. This person was just going through the shitter. I could be there. You could be there. We can listen to them be supportive. But like, if I was also having a shitty week and then I had to listen to that, like, I feel like my compassion meter wouldn't be as high or it wouldn't be like, damn. I, I, I would like to say it would be just as compassionate, but I think it's so hard to be compassionate when you're going through tough shit as well. And I think maybe for some people, they're overtly harsh on themselves for not always being the ideal. And I definitely want to give grace to some people of like, it's okay to acknowledge that you're going through shit too. And you might not always be the most empathetic, compassionate person. That being said, I probably, if I could read your mind, you'd say like, but how can we still be more compassionate? I just want to add the caveat, like how do, can we be more compassionate as we ourselves are going through some tough shit? Yeah. So Jacob, you said your compassion meter and that really resonated with me. This idea that compassion is some finite resource where you only have so much to give at a certain amount of time. 
And I think it is really important to not overextend yourself to other people to the point where you are exhausting yourself. Yeah, so the student that you were were talking about, when she was going through that, I was having an okay week, you know, so it was very easy for me to extend, you know, compassion and empathy towards her and like be very kind about it and and try to be very supportive. But I do have weeks where I'm going through a lot personally where it makes it really hard sometimes to be compassionate towards my students. You know, like someone will email me like, this assignment is like late. Can I turn this in like past the due date? And I'm like, oh, just like, just do what you're supposed to do. You know, it's almost like my temper is shorter, like my threshold into annoyance with my students goes down and I don't like myself in those moments. I can't help but feel it, right? Like it's just like my automatic reaction. And I I don't like it when I feel that way, but it definitely happens. I don't know what the solution is. I don't think that just withdrawing compassion completely is the answer. But it's also like, how do you draw water out of an empty well? I would say the compassion meter is basically a more replicable version of ego depletion. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do a study. <laughs> that, that'll show you get some hate from someone. I'm, I don't think I'm quite, maybe I am where I'm a bit self-aware of as I have those thoughts and be like, oh my God, just get your work done. Or, oh my God, like, I'm so tired of like, I've, you know, when you teach for so long, some of the excuses sound repetitive, even though they're completely different students. It's just like, why can't students in general just do better? Like, oh my God, this generation. Sometimes I catch myself and feel bad. Other times I just kind of like let myself be like, I think I've said the statement for it, okay to not feel okay. Like give my permission to at least let myself feel that in the moment. And then maybe I'll regret it later on when I'm in a better mood. I'm like, no, 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 come on, uh, get back on track. One thought I had as you were talking, as far as like what one thing can be done is you might not be able to gather water from an empty well, but you can still let people know that your well is empty. And so mm-hmm. I think that might be an important thing, at least for me. I'm always trying to talk about transparency and like the authenticity piece. If I'm really struggling to like just empathize with someone, and again, this could be at work, this could not be at work, this could be with students, this could be co coworkers. I'll try to let people know like, hey, just to let you know, I'm, I'm not a hundred right now. I'm also not feeling the greatest. I know you're going through a lot. You know, I hope it gets better. Do you mind if I check in with you a little later on? At the very least, I try not to like snap at people in the moment, right? I might think about snapping at people, but I try not to actually act on that impulse. Okay, so I obviously am very into that perspective, someone who also values transparency and open communication. But do you ever like have the fear that communicating that sort of thing, like I'm not having a good week or like I'm struggling or something like that could be seen as unprofessional when I hear the word professional and I've talked about this with our lab mate Joshua I feel like this is going to sound totally like work PC culture but like how we tend to define professionalism is a very like white way of doing it historically patriarchal way of saying what is professional and what is not even to the aspect of time and punctuality and yada 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 all the way to dress code to how our hair is to you know how we act, how we look, how we think, it has to be a certain way in order for it to be professional from a traditionally white male patriarchal standard. 
And I don't buy into that. The idea of that you have to be this strong, manly leader who's never emotional or show any weakness. If that's professionalism, I don't want that type of professionalism. For myself, I just consider it a transparent thing of like, listen, um, you know I'm there for you. I've been for you in, with you in the past. I'll be there for you in the future. Just right now in this moment, I need a little time to myself. And if anything, I feel like that would bolster respect on you as a type of leader or just like a good teacher, a good friend. Like you don't even have to use the word leader, but just like as a very real, honest person, because I think everyone can relate to like that feeling of being burnt out of your compassion meter. That compassion depletion effect is just no. sometimes empty for some people. And it's okay to acknowledge that. I think it's a power move. Oh, spicy take. <laughs> talk talk yeah. to me about power, Cassie. I mean, I guess like what you said that you think it probably will garner respect as a leader. Leader. And I think that's probably true. I have a confession. What's the tea? <laughs> What's the tea? And sometimes I need to be better at practicing what I preach, but there are definitely times where my compassion meter was done and you were sharing a heavy load with me. And I was just like, I'm not having it. <laughs> wow. And, but I try to still be honest with you of just like, okay, I understand. Or I try to express even when I'm having a hard time relating with you of like, is it really that so bad? Especially when you feel like, it's not the best thing to do, especially when you want to feel validated, but at least that's kind of just my way of saying like, I don't get it right now. Maybe I'll get it when I'm feeling a bit better. Actually, this is a very good perspective. Like how you interact with your friends, like when your compassion meter is low, I don't think that there's anything wrong with interacting with like your colleagues when you're like in the same way when your compassion meter is low of being like I see you I recognize you but like I just don't have the capacity to like provide you with that validation or like really relate right now and if people see that as an attack or see that as you don't care about them that's no longer you problem that's like you're in that other person's internalizing some stuff like they're going through their own stuff and it's like listen not my circus not my monkeys not my show to run so when I think about burnout, for me personally, something else that often causes me to get burnt out is that I have a hard time saying no to things. Like people will ask me to be on a committee and I'm like, yeah, or like edit a paper for them. And I'm like, yeah, or just like all of these extra responsibilities that I probably do not have time for, but because I am such a people pleaser and I want to be compassionate towards everybody and help everybody. I overcommit to things all the time. So something that I have had to learn how to do recently is to just start saying no and recognizing that it's not the end of the world and that it's okay for me to communicate that I already have a lot on my plate and I can't add anything else. But it's still just so hard. Like I just feel so guilty still when I say no to things. I don't know if that's been your experience at all or if that contributes to your burnout, but my inability to say no has gotten me into some pretty bad spots. For me, it's a bit of a different motivation or different, I guess, reason why it's hard for me to say no. And that's because sometimes I still find difficult what is not worth my time and what, like, what is and what isn't worth my time. Because I was raised in a household, especially from my grandmother and grandfather, right, where, you know, we didn't grow up with many opportunities. So if you see an opportunity present itself, you take that and make the most of it. And one of the great things is that in academia, there's a lot of quote unquote grunt work that nobody wants to do. So there's a lot of opportunities for you to shine and take on those experiences. And something I'm learning along with Alexa 
and Alex is very honest, just like, let me try to help figure out like this teaching career path, right? Of like, what's the best use of your time to teaching a variety of classes, teaching a large amount of the same class, or just like where to invest time in extracurriculars, such as like journal clubs, reading clubs, all the things that we kind of do outside of the thing with external organizations as well. And it's just the question of, I don't know, right? Maybe because I'm learning along with Alexa of like, what's worth your time if you're trying to pursue a teaching position? Is it always being on every single panel or committee or student government association? How much does that count? Because it's a bit of a different story when you're like more R1 oriented or you're research oriented, right? Because it seems like the only clear marker it's you should say no to everything that's not helping you get further published. For teaching though, I can see almost any experience being a mentoring experience or serving your undergrad, your sort of, if you work like in a master's program, serving a graduate student population. It's hard for me to distinguish like what is, like I said, worthwhile versus what's not. And if there's like almost a point of diminishing returns where you're like, you've done enough for the job market. Like you don't have to keep on saying yes to everything. Like even now I'm looking into, you know, following on the path of my, of my upper echelon student Cassie Witt, like you recently did a graduate teaching fellow. And like, I'm like, I think I want to do a graduate teaching fellow. You applied for like competitions or got nominated for that stuff. I'm like, that's definitely something I want to do. And you also invested a lot of time creating those workshops. And, and so maybe I can even pose this question to you. And like, what I think people should try to do is figure out what their career goals are. Ideally find someone who currently holds the position you have. But like, for me, if it's not at my institution of someone who holds like a teaching tenured faculty position, still talking to your advisor if they're supportive or talking to some other informal mentor to be like, is this worth my time or not? I'm getting an outside of Because first generation me, I don't know. Do I take on every opportunity? And like for me, it sounds like a graduate teaching fellow and creating workshops would be good for a position. How much does that actually hold sway when you're on the job market? I don't know. And it's hard for me even now because like you're the only person I know who has a teaching tenure position. And you're like, I'm trying to navigate the process of what went right and what went wrong. And I'm sure you still have like golden advice, but like, I'm sure there's still components that are a mystery of like, maybe that wasn't with my time, but it's hard to know post hoc of like, what was the deciding factor in any hiring decision? Yeah, I, as a first generation student, yeah, like I don't have anybody really like in the background other than our advisor, like trying to give me advice on like what I should be doing with my time. I've been going on intuition um, and also just like pursuing things that I enjoy like spending my time doing that seem to be relevant, you know, so I have spent over half of my time in our graduate program on like our governing body, like our psychology graduate student association and like being an officer on that. But like, that was something that I wanted to do because like it gave me opportunities, I guess like service opportunities, but also like opportunities to like learn about how like academic departments are run and to engage in like a lot of like the, the DEI stuff that our department has started. I would say that if you're pursuing a teaching career, then the more teaching related things that you do. So like being a teaching fellow would be more worth your time perhaps than, I don't know, sitting through a bunch of like grant workshops or, or, or something like that. Distinct from you, like it's not necessarily a form of guilt. It's just kind of my sense of a state of ignorance. And it's hard, I think you mentioned that, you know, obviously more teaching or like face valid ways of teaching positions make more sense. I think another thing I struggle with, and I've tried to get better on, I had an informal supervisor back in my residence hall days. And basically I was the type of person, and I've toned it down a bit, that would try to fight for everything. 
So like if there was an injustice in the department, if there was a diversity issue, if there was sexism, if there was this, that, the other, like everything from big to small, I would try to like die on those hills. Um, and I know he sat down with me and this actually stuck with me like this kind of moment where he's like, hey, let's sit down, let's have some lunch. And we talked about it. And he basically said, you can't fall on every sword. You're going to have to pick and choose your battles because you're going, you can't, you can't fight every issue. And I think in academia where there's like racist, sexist, general DEI issues, but then you and I care about teaching. And then you and I also care about open science. And this has nothing to do about like, hey, what about civil rights? What about Black Lives Matter? What about LGBT rights? What about foreign policy? What about the Palestinian question? What about genocide? And it's just like, there seems to be so much that we need to be caring about and that we can't, we can't. And at least that's where I also struggle with of like, and the background of all this of me trying to be like, how do I be a good teacher? It's like, but how do I also advocate for other things I care about without stretching myself too thin? And I think that because some things will fall to the wayside, you're always going to be accused of not caring enough about something. And you're always going to be accused of being ignorant about something. But if you're like really passionate about trying to make a positive change in the world, which I assume most people have that underlying motivation, like they want to be some sort of good in the world and change the world for the better. And that in itself kind of burns me out of like Ukraine, Russia, World War Three. Like I've been into it for what, two, two and a half weeks. I think it's nearing three. And that's exhausting to keep up with. And that's me dropping the ball on like most recent like sh shootings of police officers of like black students. And I'm like, someone brought that up and I'm like, yeah, that's still in the background as well, right? Sexual assault cases still in the background as well. And I'm like, it's hard because that's the backdrop, right? And I have to recall in the audience that maybe people who are professors already, people have some more time. Uh, maybe it's a bit easier to do the more like if you're more firmer along in your career or tenured but I think people would all say the opposite conclusion like it's the most easiest to do when you're in graduate school and you don't have a full-time job to do and it just it just never seems to be the right career moment where you can just say like let me focus on my advocacy because other priorities clinical priorities come up I think that there are often opportunities though like in academia for like crossover advocacy efforts I don't know what else to call it you know like in your teaching like when you care about being a good teacher like you can try to cultivate classrooms where you talk about DEI issues or you try to create like a really inclusive classroom environment and try to address things in those ways but it is like very exhausting like that is something that I can relate to like trying to to advocate for so many different things like the temptation is always there sometimes to just be like oh I'm just going to withdraw and care about myself and my own like creature comforts like to heck with everything else like let the world catch on fire but more often than not I think like my perspective is just like I I still want to try to like do it all yeah I, I feel like as far as guilt goes it it's guilt for like the other priorities I would say that's where it comes in yeah it's like at least prioritizing one over the other something I wanted to talk about as well it's when we talk about burnout like the most heavy topic is work-life balance mm -hmm. the idea that we face work conflict and sometimes that bleeds over into family and friends conflict which then bleeds over back into work conflict and this idea of and I feel like it's kind of a wrong description of work-life balance many people equate that with like leisure time so this idea that oh you need more work life balance you just need more leisure time but i also know there are some people who generally love the work and that's an integral part of their life but the issue 
is more trying to find a better balance so you're not sacrificing one at the expense of the other, or at least trying to minimize the sacrifice of one and the other. I know that there's an article um, I think I recently shared with you. 10 Simple Rules to Improve Academic Work-Life Balance. Yep, by Michael John Bartlett et al. Published in PLOS Computational Biology. So it's not even from a psych perspective, it's a computational biology perspective. And what they do is say like, hey, here are 10 recommendations for academia of to improve this balance. And I think that one stuck out to me is this idea of just their first rule of long hours don't equal productive hours. And this is the idea of like, I know some people who work 18 hours, legitimately. So there's some people who I suspect exaggerate their number of work hours, but there are also a few where like, oh, I actually know you work a dozen straight hours because you could call them workaholics or whatever. Maybe that's that was how I describe my friend, but they spend a lot, a lot, a lot of long hours just reading papers and reading theories. And they'll also be the first one to admit that they've worked so much and they have not been productive whatsoever. And I think a lot of people face that where like they put in a lot of work hours, but it's not necessarily the best use of the hours. It's almost like working smarter, not harder. And I feel like so many people get into uh, or sometimes get confused on what that looks like. Um, in academia. Yeah, this was a life-changing lesson for me, like learning that all of the hours that I put in are not going to be productive. So it's like, why am I just going to sit at my desk for eight hours and, and not move when I'm just like zoned out half the time and I have to read the same sentence 15 different times when I'm reading an article, you know? So it's like reconciling yourself with the fact that like you can like sit down and work a couple of hours and then like get up and like do something go for a little walk, take a drink of water, and then come back to it that you don't have to like sit down and like work eight straight hours. It's one of the best parts of doing what we do is that there is often a lot of flexibility in this job where you don't have to work a standard nine to five Monday to Friday. I I mean, I don't know about you. I struggle. I struggled like back when I was in classes to like sit in a three hour class for the full amount of time. Like I was not checked in the whole time or like being productive as a student. So like sitting in front of my computer, sometimes I definitely get absorbed in in my work, but other times it's just like, I'm just sitting there staring at a screen and not registering anything. I would say my biggest sin of this was definitely earlier in my grad school career, even up till like the first semester here, where I was like really, really interested and still am in intellectual humility. And I think I collected every article. I remember this. That I could possibly find organize like I spent so dozens upon dozens upon dozens of hours just organizing it reading each one multiple times and having this pressure of like I need to know I need to know the literature I need to know every possible and I look at that now and I can definitely see why when I first told Alexa that she just gave me a face like what the fuck <laughs> she's like why would you ever do crazy yes but it came from a sense <laughs> of like it came from this misperception that everyone knows what they're talking about and has complete mastery of their data of their like knowledge base at all times right and i think that this idea of oh i need to work more work more work more also comes from that misperception right of like i'm constantly hearing how many hours other people are working i'm constantly hearing how competitive is and everything's about publications i need to be doing more i don't have time to rest because i need to quote unquote keep up with the was it keep up with the joneses Mm-hmm. keep up with the joneses and i feel like that mentality is pretty prevalent just because that's what we kind of tell people it's like hey if you're going into this field just know it's not a lot of jobs you need to make sure you stand out and so i i think people struggle of like all right i know i need to work i need to work as much as possible but like again it's working hard but working not smart 
Yeah. For me too, like it, it got to like a point where I was like, this is not my whole life. Is it a huge part of my life? Is it a huge part of my identity? Yes. But it's not the only thing that I care about. We recently in lab meeting, like we're talking about, like we read a philosophy piece about when people die and like the regrets that they have when they die and how a lot of them are like, oh, I wish I had like traveled more. I wish I had like spent more time with my family. And none of them are like, I wish I had worked more. Yeah. So I don't know. My my advice here is like YOLO. Um, basically, work is not everything that there is in life, which is such a cliche thing to say. I would still make the caveat though that some people do integrate their work and their life in a healthy way. Right. So like, I know there's that advice of like make clear boundaries, but I feel like that's also at odds with what we're normally, at least the American point of view of like your work should be something that you love. Right. Versus like other people I met, like Australians, for example, at least the ones I've talked to very much compartmentalized work is work. My life is my life. My work is just a paycheck versus here. Okay. Maybe it's not the healthiest. Um, I think it can be healthy when done. Right. Of like, you should work. That's something you're passionate about and something that you care about. Again, I just think it's, you could still set boundaries. It doesn't have to be such hard boundaries of work is work. My life is my life. But again, it's the idea of like minimizing sacrifice of like making sure you're not abandoning your family or your friends for the sake of certain work alone. I mean, I think if it works for you and it's healthy, then like, it doesn't matter really like what your perspective is. It's like when it becomes toxic, right? This inability to like compartmentalize your work life and like your personal life like that's when you have to step back I think and question but I mean if there are people who like really integrate their work life and their personal life and then they are happy in that way and it's like not detrimental to their productivity or their mental health or anything like that then like good for you last thing I wanted to talk about is that it's tis the season the season of hearing responses back from admissions Mm. acceptances and rejections and everyone's posting on twitter you know i got acceptance to 24 programs some people are you know of the failures like i got rejected by them all but i still have self-esteem i'm like great um but it definitely is like a popular thing in these past few years that regardless of what the outcome is of just being open and sharing it without trying to be like too humble braggy about it but that makes me think of burnout in this context of there are certain labs i know and not specific to the University of Alabama, right? Because I have friends in other institutions. And from what I hear, it's that there are certain abusive supervisors, right? Toxic supervisors, supervisors that take full advantage of their students. Um, and again, I'm sure that's present in our department, but I'm sure that's present in many other departments as well, right? So this is more of a general claim. And at least in my experience, when I talk to these friends and I'm like, all right, you know, you've opened your eyes, you've seen what your supervisor is. I know some people who are just, outright quitting their supervisor from how toxic it is or transferring to other institutions, um, which I think to me is just wild. And from what I hear is that when there's that incoming bright-eyed, bushy-tailed prospective student that might get an acceptance and they're interviewing, they're either having obviously Zoom sessions, but you know, they have the grad student alone time, that not even being around the bush, the current graduate students would say, hey, this advisor is straight up awful. They're going to try to steal your work. They're going to force you to do some dubious things, right? Some things that you're not going to be proud of. Um, it's just really toxic. I would not recommend it. And I feel like students, prospective students, based on what they said, one of the most common reoccurring theme I heard 
is that even when prospective students are told about how bad the supervision is and how toxic it is, they still look for a silver lining. But what's a good thing about working with your advisor? You know, what's the strength of theirs? And you can be like, all right, like, no, this is a horrible person who has no strengths and I suffer every day here. And I'm not sure if it's one, the idea of just like overestimating their own ability to think like, oh, I know how to properly assess work-life balance. I won't burn out. Or maybe this idea of like, I'm more tenacious because I took all the AP classes in high school and I got my little GPA in undergrad. So I can definitely handle it. Or if it's more of a motivation of, oh my God, it's so hard to get into any PhD program. And this is such a possible acceptance that I'm willing to take on any situation if it means I can have my degree in a couple of years, right? So there's almost desperation to get accepted anywhere, regardless of how bad it is. But I think either of those motivations lead you more prone to burnout. And I feel like to me, it's kind of upsetting that because the whole solution is if you communicate clearly with applicants and you're trying to give them the real deal, you're trying to help them out of the date so they don't suffer. Um, and so they can avoid some sort of toxic supervision um, and that they might get accepted in a place that's healthier or they can try again and it's okay to try again. But I feel like people don't want to try again. They're like, no, if I get an acceptance now, I want it now. And I think those people are more prone to burnout. I think that's true. I think it's a basic case of like people putting on rose colored glasses. Like you're going to see and hear and reinterpret things in a way that's going to like be consistent with what you want to believe, you know? So like you're ignoring red flags. It's like how, like when you're dating or like when you have a friend who is like dating someone who is like throwing up all kinds of red flags or really toxic. I've had this experience anyway. And you sit your friend down and you tell them, Hey, here's a red flag. Here's a red flag. Like, is this person maybe not the best dating option? And then they're just like, oh no, it's fine. You know, like they are just so quick to like reinterpret all of those things as, as being okay. I would say it's even worse because if it's something where you're like, oh, this is really toxic and I need to leave, there's a great deal of shame. You weren't cut out for it. You weren't good enough, right? The idea of like, oh, let me leave academia because this just isn't for me. It's not even that it isn't for them. It could have just been like that really poor experience or like just that toxic nature where they saw the worst side of academia. Listen, if you're a student and like you go out of the state to move with an advisor and then like you quit two weeks to a month in. I'm just saying like, you could say like it's the student or if that you know that instructor, that professor, that mentor, quote unquote, I'm not sure I would call him a mentor, uh, has that record even with their current students or their past students. I, I still feel like people would still lean towards like, oh, but it was the student's fault. They shouldn't have pursued this if they knew they couldn't handle it. Um, Which is another gripe I have like with our, I guess our incentive structure, but it's like, who is holding you accountable for the way that you treat your mentees or like your mentorship abilities, right? It's like if you are a really shitty mentor and you're research productive, it's like, I don't know, like, how do you determine like the balance of those things? And it's like, can you just get away with being a really shitty mentor if you're highly research productive? Like that I would doesn't, say yes. I would say yes too, but it doesn't sit well with me. Oh, like, should that be the case? No, but like descriptively, I definitely think that's how it yeah. is. But yeah, that's only my vending session because it's just like, I think that's another attribution of just like it's the person job fit, um, or in this case, like a person lab fit, mentor mentee fit, uh, which is something we all talk about. But like, it's really hard when that quote unquote mentor is deceptive about who they are. And even with graduate student warnings, someone still feels like, oh, this is a good fit. 
And it's almost like a Venus flytrap where they got sucked in. And if they try to escape, they're going to escape somewhat damage of trying to like break free and being judged. Yeah. I mean, I think the advice that you're trying to give to people who are, I guess, on the market for grad programs or like are currently undergraduates or interested in going to, to graduate school, it's really good to be proactive about like assessing situations that could lead you to, you know, hate your life or, you know, get really burned out or all of those other really negative things that you see about grad school on social media. But it's often really, really hard, like in the moment when you're excited and you want to pursue your degree to accurately assess those things. So if I had to boil down my advice, it's like, I know it's hard to like listen to the red flags. Because I feel like everyone's common advice is like, listen to the grad students and see what they have to say about the lab. I'm like, I feel like this is pretty common. But then if the grad students are outright telling you like, no, don't come here. And you don't follow the advice of like, you listen to them, but you're not really hearing what they're having to say. Yeah. And sometimes it's not that direct because they can't afford to be that direct because of punishment and power dynamics, right? If you work in a very specific subfield and your mentor knows all the people you don't want to be caught out shit talking that mentor. I would also say it's a major red flag if you go to an interview for a grad program and they don't give you an opportunity to talk to grad students without like current grad students without faculty around. Like if there's always a faculty member lurking so that like the grad students like can't tell you things, major red flag. I want to end this session on kind of like just a personal note of like how do like what is something you do for your work-life balance Cassie like if you're to be like I do this and it doesn't even have to be like generic advice but just kind of a personal thing of like what do you personally yeah so for me I think the biggest thing I try to do is to just like keep my weekends for me obviously that doesn't happen every single weekend you know like I have very often, you know, worked on a Saturday or a Sunday, but like for the most part, I like to keep my weekends like separate from like my Monday through Friday work week. I would say more tailored to me, it's just this idea of I'm a weeb by nature. I love my video games. I like my anime and I like connecting with my friends who are across the country through those mediums of even like Netflix or teleparty um, where it's like the synchronous watching of stuff. So it's very similar to yours and the generic form of like connecting with friends and family. Seriously, I think another piece of advice is to get a good work friend, like find a good work friend. Like you and I, we can complain to one another. We often collaborate with one another on things. I consider you my friend, but you know, maybe I'm just a work friend. No, stop. You're, you're my friend, but you're also my work friend because I, I feel like you're in, you're involved in like everything that I do almost. Like we are on so many research projects together, right? We hold each other accountable. We can vent to one another. We collaborate on things together all the time. And that makes work much more enjoyable for me, right? So it's like, I'm doing work, but I'm hanging out with my friend too. I mean, I get to hang out with a music snob some of the times, listen to all that (laughs) indie music. On repeat. All right, Cassie, how would you like to end this beautiful episode? Thank you for over a thousand downloads. It's very exciting. I I know we said this already, but I wasn't expecting very many people to listen to this at all. It's cool that that people are. It makes me a little nervous, but I'm excited. I never had a doubt. I knew we could beat that 1100 barrier. Some of us have faith and a little bit of narcissism. <laughs> That's what it is. That's the key ingredient. It's always a little bit. I bring in the narcissism and the humor and the looks. All right, Jacob. Well, I really enjoyed talking about burnout with you today. (laughs) 
How oh, do we no. end this? How do I don't know how to end it? You and I struggle on how to end podcasts, Cassie. Um, that's no doubt. Uh, and I also just struggle at saying goodbye. So I'll just end with this, Cassie. <laughs> All right. Bye, Jacob. <laughs> Hello, hello again. We just want to thank you one more time for listening to Two Random Weirdos. If you want to listen to us ramble some more, we'll be posting episodes hopefully bi-weekly on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Fingers crossed. If you want to get in touch with us, we can be found on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at CorruptYouthPod. Or feel free to email us at CorruptingTheYouthPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and helping us spread the corruption. Bye. Bye.